We are starting, though, talking about something Mike Smith talked about on his show as well, and that is bail reform and the move to keep violent offenders in jail instead of being released on bail. And Mike was talking to B.C.'s current attorney general about what they have been asking the federal justice minister to do. Cities across Canada are saying to the federal government, you need to update your bail policy and hold and change some of those provisions in the criminal code that, that seek for, to hold people if there's a risk to public safety. In BC, we've been very clear that when there's repeat violent offenders, um, we need to make sure that they face consequences. Um, and, you know, we're not just waiting on the federal government, although criminal code changes need to happen. We're investing in, in teams and resources on the ground and using every tool that we can in BC to address this issue. All right, that was Nikki Sharma speaking earlier today with Mike Smith on his show. We are joined now by Wally Opal, former B.C. Attorney General, also a former B.C. Supreme Court Justice. Wally, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always good to be with you, Jill. Well, I'm very curious your thoughts on this and some of the information that was released earlier today from the B.C. Prosecution Service. Uh, one of the, the items that is really standing out, I think, for people is that judges ordered pretrial detention of the accused in less than half the bail hearings in which Crown Counsel sought pretrial detention. What are your thoughts on the fact that this is being asked for, but it's not happening? Well... Yeah, first of all, I think to step back, there's a lot of misinformation about the bail laws. I agree, first of all, with Nikki Sharma when she said that uh, people who are violent have to be kept in custody pending their trial, and those people ought not to get bail. But the one thing you have to realize, the the laws are as follows. That is, if if, um, a person is charged with a criminal offense, the judges have to release that person under the present law if it can be shown that there's a substantial likelihood that the person's going to commit an offense if released or if the person's not going to show up for his or her trial. So in those circumstances, and in those circumstances only, the judges must keep people and can keep people in jail pending their trial. But what really is the problem here is that there are a lot of people out there who are on bail who are committing offenses. Well, the judges have the power now to do that. If the Crown proves to them, uh, based on police reports, that the person before the judge is substantially likelihood to commit an offense, then it's up to the judge to keep that person in custody. you got to keep in mind one other factor, and that is that Seventy percent of the people who are in Canadian jails are now there because they've been denied bail and they're waiting for trial. And some of those people will be found not guilty or will have the charges dismissed or uh, dropped against them. So that's another factor that you have to consider. In other words, there are people in jail now who will be found not guilty and uh, So what do you say to them? Sorry for taking up your time. So that's something that judges have to consider. But I agree with the attorney general that really this is an issue that needs to be looked at. And uh, but it's in the hands of the judges. So providing that evidence is put before them from the crown that they should be detained pending trial. 
Right. So is it is it too much of a jump to make the connection that if Crown Counsel is is going to the length of asking for pretrial detention, that they've already done that homework and and are asking that because the person is is thought that they they could offend while out or, or cause more harm in that. I, I get what you're saying, that there are some people who, who where the charges will be stayed or they'll be acquitted. But but wouldn't Crown Counsel have a pretty good argument to, to make that request in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question, except you also have to listen to what the defense says. The defense may argue this is a weak case. The defense may argue that there are other ways of ensuring that this person doesn't commit offenses other than keeping that person in custody. And custody should be a last resort. Having said that, uh, given some of the numbers that we've heard out there of people having lengthy, lengthy records and are still being released, then maybe we need to take a second look at this. And the other thing we have to consider is the number of random crimes that are being committed. Uh, That seems to have been documented by uh, Doug Lepard in his report, that there are random assaults taking place. In those cases, it may be advisable to keep those people in jail where there is no apparent motive for somebody to commit an offense, then maybe that calls for pre-trial custody. Right, because how in a, in a case like that, how could you make the argument that it would be okay? And again, unless somebody was arrested and, and they are not the right person, but if, if how else could you make that argument that somebody who is accused of randomly attacking somebody and even using one of the random stabbings as an example, that they're okay to be out amongst the public while awaiting trial? Yeah, I, I share your concern there, and I think that's what the Attorney General is getting at when she said they're concerned about that, and I agree with that. Where, where you have a situation, someone commits a random attack on an innocent person without any kind of motive, without any kind of, of uh, a disturbance or anything of that sort, then I would think that in those circumstances, subject to what the defense has to say, that person maybe should be kept in custody. Uh, one of the other uh, points that was released again uh, earlier today from the BC prosecution sentence, it says Crown Counsel sought pretrial detention in roughly half of the bail hearings they conducted for crimes of violence with an accused who was also on bail on other outstanding matters. How much does it, does, should it play into it or should it matter uh, if somebody is accused and, and was already on bail for something else? It, it, absolutely. That's a factor to consider. And I would think that there have to be very, very special circumstances where you should release someone who's already on bail and who's already violated the terms of the previous bail. I would think that it'd be extraordinary circumstances where you wouldn't release that person again. The problem is that a lot of these people are mentally ill, uh, people who uh, are homeless, and there are a number of factors involved, and the judges have to consider all of those factors. One of the real problems is that our criminal justice system is dealing with people who are mentally ill, homeless, uh, they're poor, and all of those factors. And the judges have to consider that and have to consider whether or not it's in the best interest to keep that person in custody and also whether it's in the interest of society. That is, those of us who are law-abiding citizens uh, should keep someone in custody before trial.
Uh, so we heard from Nikki Sharma there as well. She was saying how uh, uh, attorneys general from across Canada have gone to the federal minister and are asking for bail reform. And and like you said, the public is is worried. The more we hear about these random attacks and we hear about people who have been in the system hundreds of times, have had hundreds of arrests in the past. What kind of reform do you think could there be or how could the bail system be reformed in a way? that would still be fair and could potentially make people feel safer? Good question. I think that uh, if a person has been convicted hundreds of times, uh, there has to be very, very compelling evidence to release that person again. I would think that bail should be almost impossible for a person who's had that many convictions. But, uh, But I'm not in the courtroom when those cases are decided. And uh, so I'm not I'm not copying out here. All I'm saying is that the judges have to hear both sides of uh, of the argument before they release uh, or or detain someone. But uh, but, yeah, I mean, the public is entitled to the protection of uh, of uh, protection. Uh, The public is entitled to that, the protection from the criminal justice system. That's why we have a criminal justice system to provide protection in a democracy to public to members of the public were there cases and and if you don't remember this that that's fine but it's when you brought something up i'm wondering too that must have been it must be difficult for judges do you recall cases where perhaps you uh, remanded somebody in custody only to find out that they were not convicted or the charge was stayed well that happens a lot i mean uh, not everybody who's kept in custody and who's denied bail is found guilty uh, we find people that in our system, who may be in custody for up to a year, a year and a half, and then is acquitted. So that's one thing the judges have to keep in mind. And so I'm sympathetic to the judges in, in those circumstances. And they have to weigh both what the Crown says and what the defense says. But I can understand the public being alarmed at the amount of street crime that is now taking place. Uh, and, and, you know, they have entitled, look, uh, if I'm walking the streets of Vancouver, I'm entitled to feel safe. And uh, and I can understand why the public is alarmed at the random crime that appears to be taking place. All right. So, Wally Opal, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about always this today. Always good to be with you, Jill. that uh, Canada's Transport Minister Omar Algabra says airlines' use of loopholes around traveller compensation has left the federal government no choice but to strengthen the passenger rights rules in this country. Once these measures are implemented, they will strengthen air passenger protection and simplify the complaint process. Among the new changes, amendments would make compensation the default unless specifically cited as a limited exception. So, in addition to being entitled to a refund, most air passengers will be entitled to financial compensation. Right now, compensation for delays and cancellation is only required for disruptions caused by the airline, and which is not a safety issue. With the new changes, we would be combining the current three categories, which are disruption within the airline's control, within the airline's control but necessary for safety, and outside the control of the airline into a single category where everyone 
would be entitled to compensation except for a clear list of exceptions. All right, and those exceptions including things like a snowstorm. Well, Taylor Backrack joins us now, the NDP transport critic, also the MP for Skeena Bulkley Valley. Taylor, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Good afternoon, Jill. What are your thoughts on the announcement and what are being called these significant changes to air passenger rights? Well, I've, I've read the legislation and I take away a very different impression from what we just heard from the minister. Um, there's a, a piece of the Canadian Transportation Act that lays out three category, categories of flight disruption. And it creates a loophole where airlines are able to deny passengers the compensation that they're due. And this government has chosen, you know, quite contrary to what the minister just said, to, for the most part, leave that loophole intact. They haven't uh, removed that three-part classification from the legislation. So what we see, instead of creating a, a simple system of automatic compensation for air passengers, we see the Liberals doubling down on a complex, uh, bureaucratic and expensive process that hasn't served air passengers ever since the Liberals brought it in in 2019. So even though he made the point of, I think, using the word loopholes a few times during that announcement, his direct quote was, this means there will be no more loopholes where airlines can claim a disruption is caused by something out of their control for a security reason when it's not. But you're saying the legislation doesn't actually do that? We wanted very specific changes to the legislation that would remove that category altogether and move towards the kind of system that the European Union has, where there are two classifications for disruptions. And, and this is getting a little bit into the weeds in terms of how this all works. But essentially, what we have right now is a system where air passengers have to complain to the airline, then they have to wait 30 days. And if they're not successful, they have to complain again to the Canadian Transportation Agency and wait in line to see if they're going to get compensation. That's a, a complex system that really favors the airlines because only a small percentage of air passengers have the fortitude and, and the, the uh, determination to jump through all those bureaucratic hoops and make it to the end of the process. Does the legislation deal with uh, other issues, though? Because one of the big complaints that we often hear from passengers is what appears to be something that was in the airline's control. Uh, the, the airline will say it wasn't, and, and maybe not something as obvious as a snowstorm, but it could be that there wasn't a ground crew to, to meet the, airline, the airplane at the gate or something else, or, or there was a staffing issue. Does the legislation deal with that? Well, a lot of this is being left to regulation, and I think that's uh, where the Liberals really should have spelled it out in the legislation so that we could have that debate. Um, but the reality is, certainly looking at the existing legislation. Airlines are able to, to claim um, that it's not their fault for all sorts of things. It's really created an umbrella that, that uh, they're able to hide under in, in most circumstances. And as a result, we don't see very much compensation paid out. So, so we very much wanted to see moving towards a system where it was very clear. You either have an extraordinary disruption or you have an ordinary disruption. And in those uh, circumstances where ordinary disruptions, things that airlines should be able to influence through their normal operations. Things like uh, maintaining the aircraft, having adequate crew on hand. Those are all things that, um, you know, the airline should be able to control for. And when they don't, the passengers that are put out should be compensated properly. I, I'm not confident, having read the legislation, I'm not confident that the changes the Liberals have proposed get us there. Uh, I've been working very closely with the leading consumer advocates in Canada, organizations like Air Passenger Rights, 
they're not confident that this gets us there. Uh, I'm not sure why the minister refused to simply emulate the system the Europeans have been using successfully for over a decade. Right, because it does kind of seem if there's a system out there that, that works well, why not to copy it? Although we don't do that with healthcare either, so maybe that's part of the reason. Well, I'm, I'm not sure what the minister's rationale is, but it seems like they had, a, they had a complex system that was failing air passengers. In many ways, they've made it more complex with these recent changes. And this is the Liberal third time trying to fix this for air passengers. We've had a system in place in Canada since 2019. When it first came out, they said it was going to be the strongest in the world. And yet what we've seen has been anything but. So, you know, we're going to do what we can to strengthen this at committee. But I'm not confident that uh, this gets us to where we need to be. And in the meantime, we have over 40,000 passengers with complaints in a backlog at the Canadian Transportation Agency. Well, I was going to ask that as well, because it, it seems like it's so different. So this legislation, according to the, the minister, it says it demands that airlines institute a process to deal with claims and respond to complaints with a decision within 30 days. Uh, and then there's the, the complaint resolution officers within the Canadian Transportation Agency as well. And this says that they should be able to expedite the process for complaints. But like you just said, so we currently have, what, 45,000 complaints the backlog at the agency, and they're taking a year and a half average per case. So how is simply passing legislation going to fix that? Well, it's not going to help the people who are in the current backlog very much. Uh, This is very much uh, looking forward at at future complaints. Um, But like I said earlier, you know, it's about a complex system that uh, has a lot of people just throwing up their hands in frustration. I don't know many air passengers that are going to, first of all, complain to the airline, wait a month, and then complain to the CTA and go through a whole bureaucratic process in order to get their compensation. This should be far more like getting a traffic violation ticket than than going to court. And and we've created this quasi-judicial system. It's super expensive for taxpayers to administer all this. And what we've seen in Europe is a much more streamlined system that uh, makes compensation uh, the rule, not the exception. Does it also, do you think, focus too much on airlines? And I know the minister also said that this was not meant to vilify airlines or demonize airlines. But uh, certainly in all the chaos we saw in December, yes, some of it was airlines, but it was also CATSA members. It was also the federal government's uh, inability to get people passports, not anticipating that people were going to be traveling again. I mean, there are, there are a lot of different agencies that are involved in this, aren't there, in, this, in these delays and in these complaints? Well, well, absolutely. And we need to see uh, improvements in all those other aspects of the aviation ecosystem as well. Uh, no one is suggesting here that airlines should be held accountable for things that are entirely outside their influence. But what we've seen over the past two years is that the big airlines have been trying to fly more passengers than they have the capacity for in terms of flight crew and and other personnel and aircraft. And as a result, they're making commercial decisions that are leaving passengers sleeping on airport floors and out thousands of dollars, missing trips they've been looking forward to for months. Um, We need to see air passengers in this country treated better. Uh, Our hope was that this legislation would get us there. We, We mapped out the roadmap. Uh, with my private member's bill just a few weeks back and said, here's what we need to do to bring us up to the European Union standard. And yet what we've seen in response, I I think, is going to leave a lot of passengers uh, in similar situations going forward. Uh, You said that the hope is to strengthen it at committee, but how confident are you that that could actually happen? 
Well, you know, I, hope springs eternal. Uh, we'll, we'll certainly do our, our very best. There are some limitations in terms of what falls within the scope of committee amendments and what doesn't. Uh, but ultimately, the accountability at the end of the day rests with the minister. That's where the buck stops. And so until we see an elimination of the backlog and until we see compensation actually going to passengers, and I haven't talked to a single passenger who's gotten compensation out of the current system. It, it's, uh, you know, it's doubtful whether any compensation is being paid, in fact. Uh, until we see that, I, I think Canadians are going to continue to ask questions and we're going to continue to fall behind the rest of the international community that's quite far ahead on this. All right, Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. I know there are a lot of people uh, wondering what changes these will actually bring. So thanks so much for joining us to talk more about it. Thanks, y'all. Have a great day. We have been talking about changes to air passenger rights in this country. The federal minister is saying those changes are significant. We were just talking with the NDP transport critic, Taylor Vakrak, saying, oh, actually, there are still loopholes. Well, that is just one of the things that we are talking about with our next guest. That is Martin Firestone, the president of Travel Secure, also a travel insurance expert. Martin, thanks so much for taking some time to join the show today. Thank you for having me. Let's start with that and the changes to air passenger rights. From what we've seen so far in the announcement from the federal minister, do you think this proposed legislation is enough that it will actually give people more rights and bring more compensation faster to passengers that that would qualify? I do. I I think it's a step in the right direction. Negatives and positives. Negatives, not going to be in place for the summertime, so the the big travel season there will be no farther ahead. We'll have just more complaints probably logging up over the 48,000 they already have. Let's assume it's September 30th. That's good. It'll be there for the winter season, etc. But we don't know what the exemptions or exclusions will be. That they need to do a panel discussion, meet with travelers, meet with airlines, meet with whoever. So we don't, don't quite know exactly how it's all going to roll out. Right. And the, the transport minister was asked that today when he said that there would be some exemptions and he used the example of, say, a snowstorm would be a, a good example of something that really is outside the control of the airline. But I guess there are other more gray areas that are still of concern? Yes, very much so. I mean, a a snowstorm, of course, is out of their control. But what is in their control that used to be the loophole that was out of their control was things like where they didn't have enough personnel or they didn't have enough staff. That's no longer going to be considered a reason because of a security or safety uh, concern. So good, good things. But I think, you know, the biggest thing of today is the $25,000 fine, which was rarely imposed, by the way, and would be now, it appears, under the new regime, is not 25000 It's 250000 I think that is really going to make the airlines take a second thought about how they're going to handle customers' needs and complaints going forward. Uh, do you have any concerns that the airlines will look at this and will try and find a way, though, to pass those costs along to passengers? Ah, that's a fear here, 100%. It's a great, great point you make, and, and, and that could happen. We're, it's happening without this announcement today. There's security fees that are increasing. There's airport uh, landing fees. So now they could look to do further fees to now cover the inevitability that they are going to be paying out because there's an incentive for them to handle the complaint and not let it get to the C, uh, Canadian Transport Agency. So, yeah, that could, that could wash out in higher fares, absolutely. The NDP critic that was just 
touched on the show as well, mentioned that the, what he would have liked to have seen was Canada follow the European model, saying that the model there has been working for more than a decade and that we yeah. should have just emulated that model rather than trying to come up with a, a new one. Do you think that would work? It would have been better, yeah. And, and, and our minister suggests that, yes, while it doesn't follow it on the weather and a few other things, it's got some other baggage things the European one doesn't. So he inferred that actually ours is better. But the European one has worked. And it, the reason it works is because there's no exclusion. So if there's a complaint, it gets paid and that's it. We still have this arbitration scenario where people have got to call into the airline first, see if the airline agrees to it. If not, they go to the Canadian Transport Agency. So we still have a little bit of bureaucracy that has to be done in order to get your refund or your, I should say, your compensation, the 250 up to the 1000 Right. And and so is it the, the what you just mentioned, the lack of exclusions or, or exceptions of the European model? Or are there other things about that model that make it better? The, the model, as I understand it, it doesn't have any exclusions, and there isn't a lot of uh, correspondence in order to get your money. It's, my plane was late, here I'm showing you there was a three-hour delay, you're entitled to $250. It's, it's a very, very simple system, and I don't think that's what we're getting right now, or oh. we'll get. All right. Um, Martin, one of the other things I know that people are, are concerned about is the continuing strike by uh, public service workers in the federal government. So we know that will have likely, if it's not already, an impact on, on passports. Uh, you mentioned this legislation is not going to be in place by the summer. Uh, do you think that this strike could have uh, could be inconveniencing travelers as well? Oh, the passport scenario, I think, is actually very concerning. Every single day that they stay on strike, it's another 25,000 applications just sitting on a desk and not getting processed. So think about it. We're going to be right back to where we were, you know, six months and a year ago when there was hundreds of thousands to process. And remember, it's not about people just applying for a new passport. It's all of us renewing our passports that have less than six months on them because you can't really go a lot of places with a passport that's got less than six months. So big concerns now about what about us who want to go away in the summer and our passport expires in September. It won't be enough to go away with a July date and a September uh, expiry. Right. And with the way it is now, I mean, unless something significant, I imagine changes with the strike, the, the emergency passports only, it doesn't seem like that that is going to change. Oh, you got to have a, I would think, uh, God forbid, a, a medical reason to go travel to an ailing parent. Otherwise, showing an airline ticket that you and your family have a scheduled trip to Disney is not going to get you a passport renewal any quicker. They're not looking at anything like that until the strike is over. And, I mean, obviously not good news for the travel industry, which was, was just kind of rebounding or getting back to those pre-pandemic levels. How are you seeing things as far as, as the numbers and people who do want to travel going ahead into this summer? Yeah, through the roof. I mean, prior to the strike and prior to potential WestJet strike, uh, you, you, I've never seen numbers in even pre-pandemic times than what I'm seeing and also purchasing a tremendous amount of cancellation and interruption insurance because people are now putting out significant dollars, non-refundable for trips this summer to Europe, etc., and they have got to back it up with cancellation in the event that they can't get there because of a strike, because of a host of many reasons. Hmm. And uh, speaking of strikes, uh, what are your thoughts on this potential or people being uh, very concerned about the possible strike by WestJet pilots? Uh, I'm seeing it all day long. People are saying to me, I have a ticket for after May 16th. Should I look for alternative 
uh, arrangements. And people who are booking now for post-May 16th say, why would I book with WestJet if there's a chance they could go on strike? So a lot of uncertainty, a lot of questions, and I wish that one would get settled and put to bed so nobody has any issues with whether they're going to go on strike or not. Right. And you mentioned having a cancel or a cancellation insurance or interruption insurance. What is your advice then to somebody right now that has already booked a WestJet flight for after that May 16th date? Well, interestingly, interestingly enough, many insurers, if it's a known cause, say it's too late to buy it. But at this point, still, I'm not hearing any difference from insurers who know there could be a strike, but say you could still buy the cancellation insurance. And if they did go on strike and you did have non-refundable amounts at the origin or destination you're going to, you could get back your monies as one of the reasons to be covered. So it's good advice to tell anybody to buy it if they're going to be out non-refundable amount of money. Hmm. Are you seeing a shift as well, whereas maybe pre-pandemic people might have chanced not having that insurance, but now, and not only because of COVID still being out there, but have have kind of become aware that there is a reason for that. And there are more chances now of trips being interrupted and or cancelled? Yes. Uh, and, and I think the consumer is more knowledgeable now and they're realizing that, you know what, if I'm laying out a significant amount of money, if you're telling me that it's going to be 7 to 8% of that sum insured to insure it, I think it's prudent to do that. People thought before our government health insurance plans covered them for an unexpected medical emergency. They know now it doesn't to any great extent, so they buy the medical. Now they're feeling that same way about cancellation, that what if you got COVID the day you were supposed to leave? Those sort of things are pushing them to realize it's a good investment to buy that at this point. Right. So I, I would imagine then right now, and all of the things we've talked about just in the last few minutes, it seems like the passport issue for anybody whose passport is expiring and they're looking to travel, it seems like that's kind of the the most, uh, the potentially the most troublesome one, given that if you're booked on WestJet, you could always maybe book another flight. It's not like you can go somewhere else to get a passport. No, and and I must tell you, cancellation insurance does not cover you because your passport did not get renewed on time. So that's something to remember. That's not why you're buying cancellation insurance, because your passport did not get renewed. That's a concern. So you're really out of luck if you don't, that strike doesn't end soon and you get your passport renewed for travel. My guess is there might be people trying to make that argument that it wasn't that they didn't get their or go to get their passport renewed. It was out of their control because of a strike. But that that won't fly with the insurance issuers. Absolutely not. It's it's actually not a covered condition. And it clearly says that a lack of a passport being renewed or, or, or arriving in time is not a covered reason as to why you can make a claim for cancellation. All right. Good to keep in mind. Martin, as always, thank you so much for joining the show and talking more about this today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. Well, we are going to take some time now to talk about the monarchy. It is the subject of a new poll that was just put out by the Angus Reid Institute. And it takes a look at how Canadians are feeling when it comes to ties to the monarchy. This is King Charles prepares to have his title formalized at the May 6th coronation. It's expected to be a bit of a toned down affair. And uh, Charles is quoted as, uh, quoted as saying is very aware 
aware of the struggles that are being felt by modern Britons. Many in Canada also wondering if it is time to split from the monarchy. So the Angus Reid Institute asked Canadians about this. And this poll that was just released earlier today finds that half, so 52% of Canadians, say they do not want their country to continue as a constitutional monarchy for generations to come. And 88%, so a big response from people saying that they believe it is worth opening up the constitutional can of worms to sever the country's royal roots. So talking more about this with us now is a spokesperson with the Monarchist League of Canada, also past chair of the Victoria branch, Bruce Halzer. Bruce, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. How are you today? I'm very well. How about you? I'm good. Uh, what are your I'm thoughts? I'm looking forward to uh, coronation. <laughs> well, you and, <laughs> and I know a lot of uh, people are, uh, but what are your thoughts on kind of the shifting numbers and people saying that, yeah, they'd be okay opening up the discussion at least and looking at uh, severing ties with the monarchy? Well, you know, this poll is actually, in my view, pretty consistent with polls over the last 30 or 40 years that I've been following the issue. About a third of Canadians... Uh, feel really strongly about the uh, and and about the monarchy and like the monarchy and they like the connection it gives our country to our history and to Commonwealth countries around the world. About a third of Canadians, in almost every poll over the last thirty or forty years, um, think that it's uh, an anachronist world. And depending on how pollsters frame the question, they usually come up with a group of people who don't really know why we have a monarchy. And there's usually about a third that really don't care and are fairly apathetic. They can easily be persuaded by public opinion at any given time to just to side with one side or the other. And and the swing you sometimes see, you know, at some years ago, the Queen's popularity was lower than Prince Charles's is today. It came back as she, as she got older. Um, and, and Prince Charles, we always knew, wouldn't be as popular as the Queen. So things are waning a bit, but I fundamentally don't think uh, it's a cause for panic for monarchists like myself. Uh, Those who like the crown in Canada, and there are many of us, feel very strongly about it. Um, Those who don't really don't care that much, and it's not going to be a political issue, aside from the fact that constitutionally it's incredibly difficult to to change our system of government, Uh, and any politicians who have ever looked at it have decided it's not worth the bother. I mean, those politicians who aren't keen on the crown just tend to ignore it. And I think for most Canadians, when they when they look at it, they realize um, if you if you like the pomp and circumstance, you you like royal visits, you'll show up with your feet as thousands of Canadians do every time. And if you're not interested, um, it's not like the monarch rules us or in impacts our daily life. And it's just not a top of mind reform issue for most Canadians. Regardless of this poll, I don't think if you ask the deeper questions, you'd find that the 52% of people who think that some point in the future generations we should get rid of the crown, which is itself a pretty soft question, I don't think you'd find that those are highly motivated people looking for immediate political change. Right, okay. What about the kind of change in feeling, and and I get what you're saying, that the the Queen's popularity did shift and change during her very, very long reign, but has there been a a noticeable shift with King Charles in that if we were going to have this discussion, more people are open to having it now? Well, certainly 
people who support our system of government that we've always had in Canada and think we have a, a, a great system of government and that we're a great country and, and therefore like the monarchy, it doesn't matter who the monarch is. But certainly uh, the fact that Queen Elizabeth II was so popular in the last 20 years of her reign uh, helped the monarchist cause immensely. And it's no surprise that King Charles, uh, following in her wake, is not as popular um, for a variety of reasons. It's That may be personal to him, but it would be pretty hard for anybody to be as popular as the Queen. I mean, any, even at Prince Charles, even if only uh, his popularity is in the 40% range, there's any politician in the country, any premier or prime minister would be delighted to have those popularity figures. So, but of course, the, the thing about the monarchy is you don't, the polls as they change from month to month or year to year really don't matter. That's the whole point of the monarchy is we're not, it's not a political figure. We're not having to debate who's in that office. It's a symbolic uh, position and delivers great value to to our country. And whatever the polls are this month or next month, Charles is our king and will remain our king. Uh, and when you say it delivers great value to our country, what is the great value? Well, first of all, we pretty much get the monarchy for free. Uh, we don't pay any salary. We don't pay anything for the maintenance of our king. Uh, we do, uh, when there's a, a royal homecoming or, or a royal visit to Canada, we do pay for security and accommodation, like as we would for any visiting dignitary uh, who doesn't live in Canada normally. But, you know, the cost for us, for our state, is much smaller than most uh, Western democracies pay for theirs. So, you know, we get great value. When we have a big national celebration, whether it's a jubilee or, or a centennial or uh, we want to honor people with medals, the, the fact that we have a member of the royal family come really adds to those events. And Canadians in, in their tens of thousands come out to these events and, and value that. People who get medals for bravery uh, or medals for achievement, that's much more special coming from a member of the royal family than coming from an elected politician. Uh, you know, I hear people all the time who've had these encounters with royals, and it's a lifetime memory, and it's something that we get uh, the benefit of as, as Canadians with really no cost. Uh, but you, you say no cost, but certainly there is a cost of having a governor general, of having past governor generals and lieutenant governors that are all part of Canada's tie to the monarchy. Well, I think the experience of republics is if we elected those positions, uh, they would cost a lot more because the elected ceremonial heads of state of, uh, of republics uh, have much larger budgets than, say, the lieutenant governor of British Columbia or the governor general of Canada does. They, they have a much smaller retinue. I think the total cost of all the lieutenant governors and the governor general and all of their uh, house maintenance and everything, it, it comes to a couple dollars a year per Canadian. And compared to most uh, advanced countries, that's a pittance. And when you talk about uh, things too, as well, the, the kind of the difference between that and elected officials, I think that can also be one of the arguments that comes up, or one of the reasons is that here we are, it's 2023. Why do we, as a country, have a head of state who was that head of state simply because he was born into this family? Well, I put it the other way around. Um, 
I think that the Crown is a real unifying figure because it's a person who doesn't have to play the political game and is not a member of a political party and isn't associated with a political group or even a regional group within Canada. Um, you know, we just need to look south of the border to see how how a divided country has to pledge loyalty to an elected president and that many people are uncomfortable with sometimes. And we've never had that dilemma in Canada. You know, when the Prime Minister uh, bows to His Majesty, he bows to all Canadians. He accepts that he is not the ultimate authority, that he is a temporary custodian of the government. And I think symbolically, when people think about it, that's a really important value. And it's easy to say, well, that's anachronistic, but it's harder to see what the value is in replacing it. What what harm is there in our current system? Certainly when other Commonwealth countries have, have held referendums to change uh, from a monarchy to a republic, even when polling showed they would win, when people actually walked into their ballot box in uh, in various places and voted, they voted to keep the crown because the alternative isn't, you know, it's not the crown versus perfection. It's the crown versus an alternative. We're a fully democratic country. We elect the people that run our government. There's no question about that. But that, but there's a value to uh, to the connection to our history and our heritage. And there's a value to having a nonpartisan um, person who's who is chosen by accident of birth, does not have to climb the greasy pole, is not a part of any of our factions, and uh, is able to unify people in a way uh, that's very different than an elected person. All right. Uh, Bruce, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining the show and for talking more about this. Okay. Thank you, Joe.